my name is Katja Seltman, and I'm an entomologist, and I'm an evolutionary biologist whose specialty is uh, bees, wasps, and ants. Um, I work at North Carolina State University uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, what I'm working on right now are these guys and gals. These are inside wasps. Uh, they're parasites or predators, depending on how you look at it, of cockroach egg sacs. And right now, these are my loves and uh, what I work with on a daily basis. Um, and as an evolutionary biologist that works with bees, wasps, and ants, what I tend to do on a daily basis is dissect the heads of these guys and look at the muscles on the inside. I'm one of those people that hangs around in the back rooms of museums, uh, don't get out much except to do field work in exotic locations. And um, what I want to talk about tonight uh, and introduce you to in my agenda, because I guess everybody has an agenda, uh, is to imagine what bee diversity is really like. And the word bee itself, most people think of this one. This one individual bee, it's one species, the Apis mellifera. Lovely organism, really beautiful, wonderful organism. But I like to imagine a little bit more about the 20,000 other species of bees, or things that we can call bee. Um, bee, of course, is a common name. And common names have a lot of misnomer to them. For example, if you do a Google search for robin, uh, you get robin redbreast, the English robin, or Batman and robin. Uh, for this reason, we use scientific names a lot of times to, to talk about organisms, and we don't use words such as bee. At least in evolutionary biology, we don't. Uh, because for me, when I say bee, I think of 20,000 species of bees that do all kinds of things, that live all over the world. When a lot of other people think of bee, they think of Apis mellifera, or the domestic bee. And it is a domestic animal. It's been with human beings for a really long time. There's pictures of Apis mellifera, bees, and tombs. Honey was talked about um, as being the fruit of life for many, many years. Why do we love bees so much? Well, they produce one of the sweetest substances that were known to man for the longest time. And one of the things that you could do with one of these sweetest substances would produce the first intoxicants. Mead, for example. We've learned to trust bees as domestic animals. Uh, we think we know them. Um, we've bred them to produce more honey. We've bred them to be docile. But every once in a while we realize <laughs> that these bees actually still have wild tendencies. And little do you know that the bee, because the honey is so sweet from honeybees, that bees have evolved poisons and toxins in their stinger, particularly four vertebrates. Because the things that go after honeybee colonies the most have always been humans or bears. So the stingers are made specifically in the toxins as vertebrate uh, aggregators, agitators. <coughs> we also love bees for another reason. We want to be one with the bees. Uh, perhaps it's because we relate to them, the apis and the social bees, because we ourselves are social. So we extrapolate our knowledge and our thinking of ourselves and our own personal environments uh, to this organism that is an insect. And it is finally one insect that we ourselves can relate to, 
somehow on some level. So I have a lot of respect for the Apis mellifera, what it's done for our society, our drunkenness, um, but also how it's taken entomology and insects and brought it to a new level of understanding. Everyone knows honeybees. But what I'd like to talk about a little bit is where this bee, the Apis mellifera, exists on the tree of life. And to start with, we have to start looking at what a bee is in relation to its closest relatives. So you know very well the best way to get to know a new boyfriend or girlfriend is to go home for Christmas because their closest relatives will tell you more about the person than perhaps the organism itself. <laughs> so bees are part of a big order, one of the big four orders uh, called Hymenoptera. And uh, I'm not going to stray away from sort of difficult terminology because I'm a firm believer in understanding complexity. If the only thing you do when you leave here is understand that the world is a bigger and more complex place than I knew before I came here, then I've already done my job, then it's been a success. So Hymenoptera are bees, wasps, ants, sawflies, um, and they're insects. When I say that they're an insect, they have all the, uh, the parts of an insect, head, sort of thoracic area, <coughs> an abdomen, but what makes a Hymenoptera Hymenoptera? Hymenoptera actually means married wing. And if you look at the wing of all bees, wasps, and ants, at least those that have wings, they have these little hooks called hamuli. And these actually hold the wings together so that they fly in unison. And that all Hymenoptera, all 150,000 presently described species, but there's more than perhaps a half a million species left to describe within the entire order have these hooks. That is if they have wings. Now, just to put it in perspective, so there's maybe a half a million species of Hymenoptera on the planet. 150,000 of these have been described, when for mammals, for example, there's maybe 4,000 species. So insects do truly rule the world. Um, here we have an evolutionary tree. This is to show <coughs> evolutionary biologists use trees like this to show what is more, perhaps more closely related to the thing next to it, to kind of give an idea of relationships between organisms. And I know it's kind of a little low on the screen, but the idea is that this or group of organisms here and this group of organisms here are living. They live right now. They're extant. But where they split off a long, long time ago was perhaps a hypothetical extinct ancestor. So we're saying something here in these trees about as a hypothesis on how things are related to each other in an evolutionary time frame. So if you look at all of Hymenoptera, down here, this hypothetical ancestor that split the Hymenoptera off, they all together at the same time have those hamuli. So all Hymenoptera have that one morphological character. Quick introduction to the Hymenoptera. Uh, very fast, again, with a half a million species, uh, we'd be here all day. <laughs> the basal, or the oldest groups uh, of organisms when the, in this order, are the sawflies. They're called sawflies because they have an ovipositor, 
or an egg-laying apparatus that saws into wood, just like a saw, kind of looks like a saw, saws into wood and they lay an egg inside the wood. A lot of these guys and gals uh, are phytophagous. That means they eat plant material. Oh, this one's really interesting, actually. Uh, this one lives on burnt cedar. So the only people that usually collect these organisms are firefighters out in the Pacific Northwest. All of this, where the great amount of species are located, are considered loosely the parasitica. These are all parasites for the most part. <laughs> they parasitize almost anything and everything you can think of in the form of other insects. A lot of them are incredibly small. This platygastrid here of the genus Bayus is about half a millimeter long. These organisms are not very well known because you don't see them very readily, but they're everywhere. You're breathing them in as you walk around. They fly through the air most of the times just on wind currents. And they're parasites. One of the interesting things, if we start looking at the aculeata, and this is where we start moving towards where the bees are. As we move up and up and up the tree, we get closer and closer to the apis that's up here in the top part of the tree. All of these organisms here, they do not have a stinger. All of these bees, wasps, and ants, hymenoptera, do not have stingers. They have ovipositors. And a stinger is actually a modified egg-laying device that now releases venom instead of eggs. And this is what we call the synapomorphy, or the character, that holds together all of the bees and wasps and their closest relatives, is the fact that they have this stinger. Sociality, of course, is one of the things that is well known for these groups of organisms, as well as the stinger. And as we start moving closer and closer to the bees, so we've moved from the aculeata to the apoidea, and to see all of the families within the apoidea, and again, the take-home point from this is that there's a lot of diversity out there. One in particular is the heterogeneus. And I'm mentioning these organisms because there's only about five species. Most of them are found in the sands of Madagascar. But the thing that's fascinating about them is we know absolutely nothing about them. We've collected them. We know that the females have really short wings. Uh, we know the males fly. But we know nothing about their biology. And there's many organisms within closely related to the Apis mellifera, the honeybee, that we know a lot about, that we know very, very little about their biology. And the heterogeneids are one of those. So the heterogeneids were here. And if you move up the tree, you get to the Apidae sensulato, which are known as the bees. So everything that I'm going to talk about from now on are officially bees. But as you can see, there's lots of families within the bees. Each of these are characterized by some morphological feature or some behavioral trait that separates them from the rest of the other bees. But the ones that we're finally end up getting to are the honeybees that are down here in the aphid. So what is it to be a bee? What makes a bee a bee? This looks like a bee. It's kind of punched over a little bit, looks like a bee. It's maybe a different coloration. This, not a bee. Definitely not a bee. However, this is a bee. So what makes a bee a bee and something that's not a bee, not a bee? Because <laughs> bees have branched mm -hmm. hairs. 
And bees have specialized hairs and specialized groupings of hairs for carrying pollen. The closest ancestors to the bees, the Apides insulato, are the sphecids. And these are more in the meat-eating social or can be social organisms, where the bees tend to collect pollen. And I say tend because there's some that don't. But they have all these specialized hairs called scopa that are used to attract pollen and hold pollen. And collecting pollen varies amongst the bees. Some of the earliest bee collecting, pollen collecting methods by bees is by sonication. So the bee hum or the bee buzz, it's thought that it originally evolved as a pollen collecting mechanism. Bees fly into flowers, there's pollen all over flowers. They go up to the flowers and they really fast, which makes they have an electrostatic charge associated with all those hairs on the back of the bee. And with the buzz, the pollen jumps from the plant to those hairs on the bee, and they're loosely carrying the pollen around. These are some of the best pollinators, those that sort of loosely carry the pollen around because they loosely throw it onto another flower. Bees do all sorts of other sorts of kinds of pollination too, though, because loosely pollinating wasn't as efficient as taking oils from plants or nectar from plants and patting down the pollen. So amongst the bees, we have a couple of really great <coughs> kinds of bees. This is a sternotrited. Uh, this is a bee, the big fat, sort of like classic looking bee, sort of big, fast flying, goes to a lots of different plants. Um, but these are found only in Australia. Bees themselves are found worldwide. Uh, the Apis mellifera was thought to perhaps originate in Europe and Asia. It's now, of course, found all over the world, um, including in America, but it's not native there. People brought bees over, uh, the Apis or the honeybee, over to work with mass pollination or pollination of things such as apples. But we ourselves have our native pollinators, and in a lot of countries like Australia and other places where there weren't originally bees, there are now the imported honeybees as well as the native pollinators. There's the halictids, and the halictids are a really interesting group of bees, and a lot of work has been done on them. The reason that they're so interesting is they're very diverse. Uh, you have sort of classic-looking big halictid bees that are sort of bee-like and very hairy. But within this family, within the halictidae, there's uh, kleptoparasitic bees, eusocial bees, and nocturnal bees. So there's a lots of different lifestyles of bees. And these have been heavily studied. And there's also bees that look like they just, you know, came out of a carnival. <laughs> and these have been heavily studied by uh, one of the best bee experts in the world, a man named Charles Michener, um, who's now an emeritus professor at the University of Kansas. And most bee biologists or people that study the evolutionary relationships amongst bees either directly learned from this man um, or they learned from his writings and literature. But one of the things that he studied in Halicted Bees was the option of sociality. And I say option because we think, because we are social organisms, a lot of times we have a bias towards you know, what is the most advanced thing? What could be the most advanced evolutionarily in life? And that would be sociality. But what Charles Michener found was that in halicted bees, sociality and very complex social systems arose probably three or four times within the halictidae. But then there were reversals back to solitary beatum from sociality. For, so for some reason, evolutionarily, pure sociality and that social form of living more than just communal living, 
was not adv advantageous uh, to this group of bees. And most bees are solitary. Of those 20,000 species, there's a huge range of, from colonial living uh, to just a few females. Typically, it is the females that do the nest rearing, uh, but there's a few females or to one solitary female that lays eggs um, in their own brood to more and more communal living through the helictids to what we think of as pure eusociality where this caste differentiation between workers and queens and drones. The calidids is another group of bees and some of these bees are our smallest bees. And this bee is also incredibly fascinating because it doesn't do anything like a normal bee. We know it's a bee because it sort of looks like a bee. We've sequenced this bee so we know that it's a bee uh, genetically, but it doesn't have the pollen collecting apparatus like normal bees do. It doesn't carry its pollen on its legs, but instead it carries its pollen on a crop, much like a chicken would carry stuff like in, in their crop. So it doesn't really behave very much like a bee. Calidids are considered short-tongued bees. So when you start talking about bees, you can pretty much divide every bee into short-tongued bees and long-tongued bees. And what makes a bee belong to a certain family of bees, if it's an apidae, where the apis mellifera is, it has a very long tongue. And these, the tongue, we call it a glossa. These sclerotized or hardened things on the outside there usually form like a cup-like shape, where the tongue comes in and out of this cup-like shape and it sucks and laps at the same time. And you can tell if you have a really long tongue like this, the chances of being able to get down into certain flowers is really good. Well, good. But if you have a short tongue like the calidids here, and they have this weird bilobed tongue, then your feeding mechanisms or the types of flowers and the things you feed on tend to be different. There's some really great calidids. I just wanted to show off a couple of them, and they all have really great tongues. If you're into bees, then you got to be into tongues. This is a wonderful bilobed uh, monster of a tongue. This crazy-looking bee looks like a little bit like a toy poodle or something. Here are the mouth parts, but this is still a calidid, which is a short-tongued bee. But look at these really, really long mouth parts. But it's like having giant jaws and then a tiny little tongue right at the tip of those giant jaws. Megachylids are great bees of worth of uh, much mention because they're super good pollinators. And they're found to be, in some places, better pollinators than Apis mellifera. It's not that I have anything against Apis mellifera. Uh, but one of the reasons is, is they're one of these vibration pollinators. We just go to a place, and the scopa are right underneath the abdomen here and the pollen just jumps up on the scope and they carry it around to the next flower, next location. The megachylids are also known as leaf-cutting bees. They build their nests, they're solitary for the most part, but they build their nests by cutting pieces of leaf out, chewing it up a whole lot, and then lining underground nests or nests within wood with these pieces of chewed leaf. They're also kleptoparasitic, but the most famous kleptoparasitic bee if you look at apidae and you start getting closer and closer to the apis, you have to look at these bees, which are commonly known as the cuckoo bee. And the reason is, you can see there's no scopa, there's no hairs for holding pollen on this bee. These bees, evolutionarily speaking, have decided, well, since all the other bees are doing all this work, why do we need to go out, collect all this pollen, and go back and forth and do all of this work? Instead, they lay their eggs in other bees' nests. The eggs hatch, 
eat the pollen that the, the female bee has fortified in those nests for its own young. But not only does it do that, it eats the larva of the other bee. And this entire uh, subfamily, for the most part, is kleptoparasitic. And some of them are full social parasites, which means that they'll go in, lay their eggs inside a, a larger colony of uh, bees, not just solitary ground nesting bees, but more colonial nesters or even eusocial bees, and have a full colony of cuckoo bees within the social nest. So if we move down further and further in the Apennine, we can see that we're going to get very soon here to the Apennine, the honeybee, where uh, Apis mellifera lives. But first we're going to talk about the other eusocial bees that produce honey. Um, these are more tropical than the Apis. These bees tend to live and tend to thrive in very tropical environments, where the Apis not so much. They're also known as the stingless bees, because if you encounter a colony or a large nest of uh, these bees, you won't get stung multiple times, but you'll just get gnawed on. <laughs> they don't sting, but they chew. And they have toxins and stuff in their mouths that can cause blistering. Uh, so large colonies of chewing bees, but they do produce pretty good honey. But because they're really such good chewers, it's thought that that's the reason why some of these bees have turned to carrion eating. That they've taken what is commonly known as a, what a bee lifestyle is, of eating mostly plant foods, plant nectars, things like that, the occasional kleptoparasite that eats the larvae of other bees, and have become primarily carrion eaters. And uh, supposedly, that a large colony of these bees can strip a corpse on the side of the road within a matter of days. Gone back to um, more what the specid wasps or what wasps do, uh, where they eat animal matter instead of plant matter. Euglossines are really interesting. These are also known as the orchid bees. These are the ones that perhaps you've heard about before that have very close relationships with the flowers that they pollinate. And those flowers tend to be beautiful flowers in the tropics and they tend to be orchids. These bees are all solitary bees. There is no, but very little colonialism and definitely no eusociality within these bees. And they're also not interested in collecting pollen. These, it's a little, still a little bit unknown, but these bees, the males are the ones that do the pollinating and they are oil collectors. The idea is that they think that the bees collect the oils and rub it on themselves all over as a way of either one, marking their territory, two, being attractive to female bees, or three, as a defensive measure against other male bees. And as you can tell by this, that these are truly long-tongued bees. Finally, we get to the apis species, highly eusocial apini, uh, the apis mellifera, the, the honeybee. But so, you know, as a take-home message, when you think about things like colony collapse and, and the troubles that are happening amongst the bees. It's not just the large colonies of honeybees, the monoculture of our domestic bees uh, that's in trouble, but it's actually all of these stingless bees, the solitary bees, the ground nesters, all of these other bees and bee diversity that equally is in trouble as the colonies of bees that we know so well. A lot of the ground nesters are really, of course, when new developments <coughs> move in, Ground nesters, of course, get pushed aside. A lot of them are very susceptible, of course, to things like pesticides, agricultural mechanisms, things like that. And they're little, as little known of organisms because they're often hidden. Since they're solitary nesters a lot of the time, 
you'll only see, for example, one little bee coming in and out from under the ground, and that's it. They don't make the big presence or the big buzz like the large colonial bees do. But these are also equally important pollinators for lots of agricultural crops, but also wild plants um, within that are important to us and things that we don't know are important to us yet. So thank you very much. Thanks to Mike from Touch for uh, inviting me. Um, the pictures that you saw are all available through uh, morphbank.net under Creative Commons license for anybody to use and the National Science Foundation who gives me most of my money. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.